Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Church. That worship made me so happy. I don't know about you. Um, <clears throat> it's wonderful. I mean, we serve. Whoops. Let me. Let's, I'm going to move forward, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Talking, talking. All right. Maybe I'm far enough. Uh, I mean, that just shows there's so much power up there. You know, I'm get, getting. <laughs> Getting too close to it, it's going to short-circuit my headset. Um, so good, such a good God. Uh, so wonderful to see people being doers of the word, using their skills uh, to worship God. And so this morning, um, man, I was joking that I was probably going to cut out some points this morning because I could smell all the food in the next room, right? It's just, oh, I think we're going to skip, but we're not. We're going we're gonna to get through this, even with that wonderful smelling food this morning. And we're going to get through James chapter 1, finally. And so just like I planned, right, five weeks. Um, so let me ask you this to start. Uh, what, what defines success in a relationship? What defines success in a relationship? Moreover, who defines success in a relationship? Um, depending on the type of relationship, um, if it's uh, more like romantic it would probably be both people, ideally, give and take, defining what success would look like. Um, if it's uh, an employer-employee relationship, employer, I mean, let's just say it, they get to say what success looks like and, and, and what it looks like to be acceptable. Now, I mention this um, because one of the worst feelings in the world, I, I believe this, one of the worst feelings in the world is to be in a relationship and you think it is going very well awesome. You couldn't be better from your perspective, only to find out that things are not as great as you thought they were. I think it is behind me. Not as great as, as you thought they were. That you have not met the standard or the expectation for that relationship. Now, I say that because I remember working I remember working one day at Tower Records, at maybe 19 to 20 years old, and I'm just going to... Thank you. All right, we're gonna we're gonna try this again. Does that sound okay? All right, come on. Yeah, all right, all right. So I just gotta remember to not talk with my right hand. So uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> being 19, 20 years old, working at Tower Records, best time of my life. 
I was in the middle of a shift. For some reason, I was at the front of the store, and this is a huge store. And I get paged to go to the, the back office. I get paged to the office. And so I, I'm just making my way down to the office, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I going to the office? And I'm thinking, like, okay, well, I've won several competitions recently. I was a store artist. I, I won several competitions. I had several pop stars and rock stars come into the store, look at my work, and, and tell me how awesome it was. And they wanted it for their house when it came down. And so I was going into that office smiling, thinking, like, employee of the month, something, lunch, some, something good is going to happen. When my manager saw me, he told me to stop smiling and he proceeded to write me up. And I believe that it had something to do with the time clock, a new time clock system. I was salary, I don't know. <clears throat> that very same day, you can't make this stuff up, that very same day, I am called to the office again, going back there. They're going to get it right this time. They're, they're going to know how awesome I am. Like, they'll fix everything. No, I got written up again. Twice in one day. And so <clears throat> it, it was horrible. And, the, and I don't remember what the rule I broke with that was. Um, but the point is, like, I thought I was doing awesome. Right? I thought I was doing great. But according to my manager, according to Tower Records, I was not being acceptable. My behavior was not acceptable. And a couple of weeks later, I was fired. And so that was the last time I was ever fired. I will never make that mistake again. I am handbook guy the rest of my life. I, I live by that handbook. I know the standards. I can quote that book. I know what is expected of me. And now when it comes to something far more important than working at a record store, when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our relationship with God, we can't assume, right, we can't be deceived that, that just because we think things are going awesome, that we are doing what we are supposed to, that we are actually doing what God wants. Right? Those can be two entirely different things. And so the rules, of course, of living for God are defined by God. Those are rules that he has given us. Now, last week we talked about being doers of the word. Do, do, you must be doing something over and over. Don't deceive yourselves. You better be doing something. Which means, quite frankly, the most critical information that we can have is the instructions. Like, all right, like just do stuff. What are we supposed to be doing? And that's really the rest of the book of James. God has given us the instructions and expectations on how to live for him how to have a relationship with him. And what he calls that relationship, we will see here in James, in these two verses, is he calls that relationship with him religion. And so our text today will be two verses, James 1, 26 and 27. Our sermon is titled, Pure Religion as Relationship with God. And I will pray for us. Lord, we love you. You are awesome. <clears throat> Um, I do ask, Lord, that uh, for, for less technical difficulties moving forward. Um, I thank you, Lord, for that sweet worship this morning and, and your saints who want to be doers and use their gifts uh, to your glory, Lord. 
I thank you for uh, this community of believers, Lord, that you've brought together and that we could spend time together uh, fellowshipping, Lord, and encouraging one another. And I ask, Lord, this morning that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and open our minds. There's got to be at least something that will offend just about every one of us here, or at least convict us, Lord. And may we not shy away from that at all and just be welcome to whatever you want to speak to us through your word, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first two verses this morning, our only two verses this morning, verses 26 and 27, we read, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue uh, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, religion, 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 pure religion, worthless religion, right? In two verses, we see the whole point of this doing thing is to have a pure religion and at the same time, to not have a worthless religion. And so with that, the first thing I want to emphasize this morning is that we need to restore religion. Restore it to its proper place in our Christian mindset, in the way that we live and think about God. Now, don't get me wrong. Religion hasn't gone anywhere. But as long as I've been alive, so I'm assuming even before me, Christianity has been a bad word in the church. Or I'm not sorry, Christianity, religion. It's been a bad word in the church. It's a concept that we don't like. In fact, we would say, no, we want relationship. We don't want religion. Religion is bad. No. This error contradicts the very words of Jesus who says, your love for me is measured by your obedience to me. Right? The way your religion works. How religiously you know, do you love me? In verse 26, we see this warning about the misuse of the tongue. And what's the warning? Like, what's the danger that James is saying? As James is trying, you know, James doesn't cut any corners, right? He doesn't mind being controversial. And what does he say is the issue? What's at stake if you don't control your tongue? Your religion, right? And so that tells you something. His high view of religion, what's at stake is your religion, What that implies as well is that what we want is a valuable, priceless religion. That, that is what we are aiming for. It, 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 the reason that we want to restore religion to Christianity as well is if we don't understand that religion is required, then who cares what James says? Who cares if James says your religion will be worthless? Who cares if we already think it's worthless? I mean, there's nothing at stake. If you don't think that, that Christianity is a religion, there is nothing in the book of James for you. That's all he says over and over. He, he wants you to take that beautiful, precious faith you have in Jesus Christ, that, that gem, that treasure that you have, and he wants you to apply it to your life religiously. And he calls it religion, which means God told him to call it religion. Now, most of us, we have either jobs, 
uh, we go to school, we're a student, or we're involved in, in some sort of friendship or romantic relationship that all have rules, right? Don't steal, don't lie, you know, don't cheat, don't leave the seat up, no phones at the table, right? Nobody talk about Fight Club, right? There's all these rules, and we're okay with them. We don't question them. Why? Because we have a benefit, right? There is a benefit, whether we're in this relationship by necessity or by choice, there's a benefit. There's a paycheck. There's a continued relationship. There's a grade. There is something in that relationship that makes us be obedient. So why do we have a problem? Why do some people have a problem or scoff at the fact that we have to listen to the rules of God in the world that God created? Right? What benefit are we waiting for? Like, what more do we need than Jesus Christ himself? What benefit are we waiting for? What do we need to be motivated at this point? Why is the one thing that we struggle to do religiously religion? There are many reasons for this, but I want to highlight one this morning. And that is, I believe... And, no, and we won't say it, and maybe we don't realize it. But I believe that we believe that our faith and our salvation is a transaction and not a relationship. We believe our faith is a transaction instead of a relationship when it is both. Right? It, it, it is both at the exact same time. Yes, you were saved by faith in Jesus. Yes, you were saved by grace, right? By, it, by faith alone. We love that part as we should. But we were saved by this transaction. We were saved into a relationship with the person who saved us, who saved us for a reason so that we can have a relationship. So the transaction and relationship at the same time. He saved you so that you could know him more, so that you could walk with him, commune with him, so that others could see him through you and see how great our God is by the relationship that you have with him. He's told us what to do. He's laid it out for us, and now he's just saying, just be doers. He's done everything else to save us and give us the rules and expectations. And that's why James just says, now just do it. You just, that's all you need left is just to do this. Don't deceive yourselves. Now, the reason that we follow the instructions of God, we follow the instructions to have a good religion, right? A good, a good pure religion is according to verse 26 is that we don't want to be unstained by the world. We don't want to be unstained by the world. The world is a place full of religion. It's a religious place. Everything, everything, everywhere is done religiously, whether it's a religion or not. And quite frankly, I think most of us would admit that we dabble in a lot of other religions without thinking about it, things that we do religiously. Now, the worst religion of all, I believe, is self-worship. Self-worship, your own goals, your own expectations, where it's all about you, right? You're the own standard, being your own best self. But if you don't follow the rules of God religiously, then you're following your own rules religiously. Which means what? You are self-worshipping. 
your religion is worthless. That's not going to take you anywhere. So what does God say about pure religion? And we talked a little bit this, about this already. Don't be stained by the world. Don't have the same religion as the world. Don't do everything the world does. Your religion should make you different than the world. Don't be stained by it. And then we find two more here that we'll look at with the rest of our time. Going back to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And so what we find here is your religion is worthless if you don't tame your tongue. Right? If you don't tame your tongue. And so we find here this imagery, these words, bridle your tongue. Right? Bridle your tongue. What does that mean? If you're familiar with horses, you know, bridling the horse, you know, you put the bit in its mouth. To what? To, to shut it up? Eh, not really. It's to control it. You have this insane power, force that must be controlled. And so you use the bit for that. Some translations, if you have a translation that says controlling the tongue, I think that's very accurate as well. It's talking about controlling something. And isn't it interesting you know, I was really looking at the language of this, is the, the tongue language that James uses a couple times. He, he considers the tongue so powerful that he talks about it being apart from us. Like, we have to take control of it. We have to catch it. Like, our tongue is so crazy and out of control. We got to find it. We got to capture it. We got to bring it under our control. It is so powerful. How important is our tongue that it also shows how valuable our religion is? Our tongue is a test of our religion. How crazy is that? You want to know what you believe? Listen to yourself. Record yourself. Ask other people what you're passionate about, what you talk about, how you think. So the tongue is a test of our religion. Jesus said as much in Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus said, You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so our speech, it declares what we believe. Not just what we say we believe when we declare what we believe, but everything else we say will actually say what we believe. Christian speech should display a transformed heart. That's what James is saying. You shouldn't sound like everybody else in this world. Your tongue should, should, should show that you've changed on the inside. With that in mind, I want us to look at six areas in our life that we need to tame our tongue. There is so many more than six. And so just for reference, anytime you open your mouth, be thinking about this. But I want to look at, at six ways specifically um, how we can tame our tongue. And the first is with our family. And so, family, we have this advantage. And it's a disadvantage as well, that we are familiar with each other. And we are okay being ourselves around each other. That is great. You can be yourself. That is also a recipe for disaster. As we will all see come Thanksgiving, right, when we have our family over. 
And yet we are to be salt and light to our families. And especially come Thanksgiving, maybe this is my family, maybe your family is a lot better, but on my side of the family, extended family, family time is gossip time. And so if I haven't seen my brother in a couple years, how is so-and-so doing? How, how is my brother Sal doing? It turns into gossip. Gossip, gossip, gossip. We don't want gossip. Don't let people gossip, especially in your family. Stop them, call them out on it. When we have family gatherings, and even in our own houses, we need to dictate what speech should look like. Right? I mean, the reality is our spouse or our kids, everybody's going to catch on to how we talk, and they're going to copy us. And so we should really show them that we are able to tame our tongues. You know, and like me, I don't do this well sometimes. And maybe you would say, oh, I haven't done a great job. Change. Right? Tame. Let's tame it. That's what we want this season, right? We want to grow. So let, let's, let's own it. The first part is own it. Yes. I, you're convicted. Change. Number two is spouse. And yes, before somebody comes up to me after the service, I know spouse is part of the family. Um, but they also need to be addressed. Our spouses need to be addressed specifically. <clears throat> Because I know from research and I know from counseling and counseling people that our spouses can receive the worst of us, especially our words. And I think part of that, part of that is that we are away from each other all day. And so we're usually at jobs or school or doing something and you are putting on your best face. Right? You are being professional and polite and all those things that are exhausting. Right? And so by the time we get home, I mean, we're worn out. <coughs> Yet that's not an excuse. I am convinced that if we spoke to our spouses like we do the respect for our bosses and coworkers and for our customers, or if we spoke to our spouses like we do our friends with fun and enthusiasm, it would change our marriages, right? It would change. At some point in our marriages, it became okay to forget the person we married is our favorite person. And that's shame on us. Part of what wears a marriage down is both the abuse of words and the neglect of words. I can't tell you how many times, especially early on, I said things to Gianna that were horrible. I was in a bad mood, we were fighting, whatever it may be. I said things. I did not control my tongue. I did not tame my tongue. And that's not okay. That is not okay, but it's not okay for any of us. We must take that under control. We need to have our best words, our best words start with those that we give our spouse. And again, it is not too late. It is not too late. Are you with me, guys? I know this is heavy. Three, friends. Friends are great, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> well, what's the problem? Well... Most stories start with, I was with my friends, right? And so a lot of trouble to be had with these friends. That's what makes them fun. 
Yet I believe friendships are one of those areas where our speech can quickly become defiled and worldly. Especially if, if one friend, if you have a friend, if you're a Christian who's not Christian, right, and you don't want to offend them, right, you don't want to share your faith and have them not be your friend. And so what happens is you sound more like them than they sound like you. And so we have a lot of worldly conversations. I say that to just, to just say let's be aware and let's be intentional about that. Not, not letting us be too stained by these conversations that aren't godly, but also pushing back. You're in a relationship. You can dictate the speech in that relationship. So season it with encouragement and salt and light and gospel. Number four. I don't have these numbered. I hope I'm numbering them right. <laughs> Other Christians. Hey, praise God. I don't think this is an issue in this church. And may it never be so. But James is writing this for a reason. Right? J James is writing like many pastors throughout history who, who <clears throat> as unbelievable as it may seem, has people who profess that they believe in Jesus Christ and yet they harm or, or they are mean to other Christians. Right? In their family, in their church. Abusive, harmful speech. And a lot of this, again, is in that form of gossip. We cannot gossip. Do we know what gossip prayer is? You guys heard that before? Yeah, some of you? Yeah. And so here, here's what not to do. This is not praying, okay? Let's say you're, you're praying, which is great. We, we do that. That's wonderful. Don't say, hey, I have a prayer request for so-and-so and blank. I heard that they were, insert whatever gossipy nonsense rumor, may be true, but you don't know that, so don't say it. That is gossip praying. That is pretending to be holy and trying to pray for somebody, but just gossiping about somebody. We cannot do that. It's ridiculous. So gossip anywhere, anytime is not okay. And we'll come through this in James again. Number five. Social media. No, James had no idea what social media was, right? I get that. But boy, does this command to control the tongue ever fit this situation, right? After all, James, what is he talking about? The world, just like Jesus did. So when James says world, he's talking about the world system. He says world, he means all the nonsense, the way everything works. And the reality is we live in this world that has social media, that is the reality of our world. And again, we have a culture of self-worship. Well, what does that mean? How do those two things play together? We believe that anything we think should be posted. Any, any thought we have is so wonderful because we worship ourselves so much, we believe that everybody in the world must be made aware that you have had this thought. And it exists for all eternity. It's projected into outer space. Like, that's how much we think of ourselves. It's vain. And it's dangerous. Now, having said that, I am not anti-social media. 
I love seeing when you guys post pictures of your family. Makes my day. Love that. That's not what I'm talking about. I think you know what I'm talking about. Right? We don't need to see every meal you've ever eaten. I don't need to know your opinion about any and everything ever. Post the cute pictures. Yes. That's great. But before we post anything online, I think what we should do is check our motives about what, what we are saying and why we are saying it. Right? I'm just talking a couple of seconds more than most people take to post something online. I'm scared to death to post anything online. I usually don't if you see my, my, my Facebook. Take a moment and ask yourself, what does this say about my religion? Right? Is this self-worship? You know, or am I encouraging and loving people? Am I pointing them to Christ? Or is this all about I want people to worship me and be jealous of me? I think we need to, to ask that question. Number six, cussing. Cussing, um, bad words. Bad words, the, the words you would bleep out, right? Um, I may have had a little potty mouth growing up. And so my, my family, my mom, my grandma would tell me, the Bible says not to cuss. The Bible says not to cuss. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, and kids, that, that, it's not what that meant, you know. Now, the Bible says not to swear. The Bible says not to swear. In fact, in James chapter 5, when we get there in a couple of years, we will talk about how, <laughs> we will talk about how we're not supposed to swear. But that's not cussing. That's not what cussing means. But why am I bringing this up? Well, I, I, I am going to quote uh, my former pastor and mentor, Mark Halleck who in a sermon said, although the Bible doesn't say not to cuss, we can all agree that cussing is not cool. Cussing is not cool. That is not, that is not biblical. That is me saying, guys, let's just, if, you, if you're able to, let's just agree on that and work on that, that cussing isn't cool, okay? And the reason for that is we want to aim to be different. We want to aim to be different from the world and if you really want to stick out and just have people say, what's up with this person? It's usually, what's up with this person? They don't even cuss. So let, let, let's work on that. And so I think, I think those are pretty understandable. I think that we get that. Okay, the tongue is so powerful. We have to control it. It expresses our religion and what we believe. But I think the more controversial aspect of this passage for some, is what we find in verse 27. And so this aspect of pure religion is this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so what we are talking about is helping the helpless. Helping the helpless. If you've ever read the Bible cover to cover, and I encourage that, you will know that God cares a great deal about the helpless. They are mentioned all the time. And so I just, I just pulled out one verse out of many, which is Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. 
It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And so do you see the heart of God there? Do you see the heart of God? If you read the Bible cover to cover, this, will, this comes up over and over. If you want to be blessed, if you want your work to be blessed, then use your blessing to help the helpless. There's just so many times that just popping up in my head of God talking to Israel. And what is the first thing he condemns them for? It's not helping out the fatherless and the widow and the poor and the foreigner. God cares about that. If we want to be God-like, we have to care about what God cares about. And this is God's heart. Now, in this biblical context and culture specifically, the widow and the fatherless are, the fatherless are the neediest. There is no government assistance programs. Right? They get no help. They have no money. They have no way to make money. They have no place to live. And so um, their, their life was a life of begging, begging people and, and just having people pretend like they don't see them. Right? On the street begging, and people won't even make eye contact. Nobody wants to recognize them. But God recognizes them. God saw them. God sees them today. And he cares for them. And maybe you would say, well, I don't know anybody who's helpless. Like, I don't know anybody who's directly helpless. And that's okay because this expression, look after, literally means also look for. So it's not like, hey, if you see somebody, he's saying go find somebody. There is need. There is need in Bakersfield. There are needy. And this doesn't just apply to orphan and widows, but it applies today, I believe, with anybody who's needy. So homeless, poor, what does God tell us to do? Judge them and judge how they got there? Or does he tell us to help them? Yeah, he tells us to look after them, doesn't he? What about the horrible suicide rates? Right, all these horrible suicide rates in our era. What does that mean? There's people who need friendship. Like, is that a need we can meet? Like, people just need to be loved? We can do that. This isn't a matter of, uh, uh, is, is this something that we should be doing? Like, should we be doing this? No, James says the issue is, is your religion pure and undefiled? That's the only issue here, not whether we should do it. And God has an answer for the helpless. God's answer for the helpless is the selfless. God has brought together a group of people who he's called to be selfless and meet these needs. He's called the selfless to be an expression of his heart for this group of people. Now, I think a great example of this, as I was thinking about this, what would be a good example of this in our culture? And so, the example that I thought of was Monica. And so, Monica, you know, tragically, uh, recently, um, there was a situation where two lovely young ladies needed somebody to look after them. Monica stepped up and did that. She has done that joyfully, passionately, sacrificially. She has stepped up and done that. And I know she's done it well because the girls follow her around. 
My kids don't follow me around. And because Monica loves the Lord and loves them, she brings them to church. Now, I, I couldn't think of a better example for us of, of actually showing a religion that impacts the community. Right? I mean, that's, that's, doing, that, that's doing what we are supposed to do according to this text. Now, with that in mind, I think that we absolutely need to be praying for, for Monica and the girls all the time. That is something we need to do, come alongside them. And so to answer, who will help the helpless? Who will help the helpless? It's the selfless. Well, that's the answer. What's the question? Is our religion pure and undefiled? Right? And so are we part of that solution? And I realize that's a convicting word. But the truth is, I believe the church in the West has failed, and it has failed, in case you didn't know. It didn't fail because we didn't win a culture war. It failed because we started dictating what our religion would be instead of God. Instead of coming to his word and his instruction about what religion looks like, we've cut out the, the, the fact that it would cost us anything, that it would change us. Right? At some point, we stopped caring about the people that were out there that were uncomfortable and focused on, on our comfort, what we think our religion should be. How comfortable am I at church? How is my church experience? Instead of being our first concern is, what about the person who's not here? We've changed what religion is, and that is why we have failed. And so on the heels of Reformation Day, this past Monday, I want to quote Martin Luther, who says, A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. We were the ones who were needy. How quick we forget. How, how smug we are being here. <laughs> right? And just with all this wonderful food and great worship band. and We forget that we were, were spiritually homeless. That, 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 that we were fatherless. We didn't have our relationship with our Father God. And yet God is the one who, who restored that. Who reached out to us to do that. Our salvation cost Jesus his life. Cost. It cost him. And it was a transaction. So through this transaction of the cross, we are saved into this relationship with God, with Jesus, that he calls religion. And again, religion, what does that mean? It means we're living before God. It means we're living with God. It means we're living for God according to God's standards. And this isn't a burden. This is a blessing. If you think it's a burden, it's because you've never done it. You haven't experienced the joy and freedom of obedience to the Lord. I'm telling you. It's time we trust God by listening to God. And I know that we all have work to do. So let's get going and let's get doing. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. You are wonderful. I thank you for allowing us to know you. 
you didn't have to tell us who you were. Even though we would see your beauty in all of creation, we would experience your common grace in every breath that we take and every wonderful thing in our life. And yet you came further. You, you, you gave us your name. You gave us your heart. You gave us instructions on how to come to you. You paid the cost to bring us to you. And all that you've asked in return is obedience to actually enter this relationship with love, which is obedience to you out of love for you. I know me and others here, Lord, we would confess we our religion isn't what it should be. But we want it to be. And so we thank you for conviction. We thank you for your word that highlights that we may be wrong about what we think success looks like. But we all want growth with you, Lord. We want to grow in intimacy with you. We want to have that joy and passion for you daily. We want it to impact not only us and the way we think and what we say with our tongue, but the way we view those who are in need, the way we interact with our own family, and the way we interact with everybody we come across in this city. We have faith in you. We know you are good, and we want to be used by you to reach this city. And may all this, Lord, never be done for our glory, Lord, but for, for the glory of Jesus always, Lord. We thank you, We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.